Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Warning. This episode of Guilt contains themes of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. On the last episode of Guilt... And then the second time he was back there, as the security guard said, he was looking quite panicked or um, worried, you know, all of those sorts of things when he saw him. I'm not making any sense. So he was kind of like in a um, fight or, you know, that fight or flight sort of, yeah, type of um, adrenaline running um, type of thing. And Maybe he felt that that was a safe place, or we don't know. They would sit here, because they were always here, um, sit here and worrying when they went to sleep that I wasn't going to come home. You know, all of those sorts of things, they were always there. Um, You know, and psychologically, it's just, it's, it's a hard thing to get your head around. Violence that may disturb some people. Today we can officially announce that New Zealand's deal has cracked the code. On the 21st of June 2004, scientist Jim Donnelly vanished from his work at the Glenbrook Steel. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolfe, and this is Guilt. last episode, we heard from Tracy, her side of the bizarre series of events leading up to Jim's disappearance. And we also got an understanding about the emotional toll Tracy and her children have borne 
for all these years. In this episode, we're going to hear from someone whose name has come up many times, and aside from Jim's own family, was also heavily emotionally affected by Jim's disappearance. His best friend, Stephen Taylor. I meet Stephen and his wife Debbie at their home in Auckland. Like Tracy, Stephen hasn't given up on the hope that someday the truth about what happened to Jim might be revealed. We started at primary school together and off and on with um, uh, pretty much best mates well, for a long, long while. He went through a massively religious stage and, uh, and maybe we separated a little bit there and then he discovered that was all quite hypocritical and, uh, and it was back and then, yeah, I went off to Australia and uh, didn't see my vast amount during that, but yeah, it was groomsman at his wedding and... Uh, and the like, so yeah, I've known him for a long, long time. We've, 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 uh, one of the few people that we could, I could converse with, and is on the same wavelength, um, similar interests in the physics and, and science, and um, we could move um, on the same wavelength in that frame. So we could, we, we, yeah, I miss him because there's not a lot I could do that with, yeah. It immediately catches me that even after all these years, I can still see some emotion in Stephen's eyes when speaking about Jim. While Tracy has been able to build a bit of a protective barrier for herself, Stephen doesn't seem to have been able to do the same. I can tell he's a loyal friend and just honestly seems like a nice guy. He's also very intelligent and it was because of this Jim and Stephen were naturally drawn to each other from a very young age. But sort of going through school and that kind of time, you guys were sort of making rockets in the backyard or something. Oh, no, not quite. Probably more. Uh, yeah, we did make some explosives. Um, but um, no, no, well, I was, I was quite involved in scouting and still are. So spare time was more dedicated to, um, I played an awful lot of sports. Um, Jim probably wasn't the same way um, inclined with sport. Yeah, he played um, rugby with us. Um, squash? He used to play squash? He used to play squash, yeah. We played squash together. Um, that was later years when we were at uni together and that, and he carried that on a little bit more. Um, he was always the one more that that probably analysed a lot more than I, but then he needed to because he just didn't have the same um, strength or speed that I had. Um, but that was fine. We had a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I think he used to play as fullback, and I'd be in the forwards in our younger years. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, and we did. We I played a lot of sport, and I got him into scouting and um, ventures, which is the later age group. Yeah, and we um, we discovered he wasn't so much of a hiking sort of. A, he wasn't really inclined to that. He did like his creature comforts more. But, you know, it, it was, yeah, we, we, we had a lot of experiences together. So, yeah, he was tended to be a more introspective guy than I. Yeah, how would you describe his sort of character and stuff through school in terms of how he would fit in with other, other kids and... Well, that's difficult because at that time the school they went to was a challenging oh, we, school. Yeah, we, look, we went to Tamaki <laughs> College and, um, you know, Glenn and his primary, Glenn and his intermediate Tamaki College. 
Um, Tell me about what is Tamaki College a bit rough. Oh, yeah. At that time, it was very yeah, rough. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. It, it could be on occasions. Um, there were certainly um, a lot of factions in there that were, yeah, you could walk out onto the tennis courts and there'd be a mass scrap going on. But, you know, gee, they can be big kids. Um, and and you, it hasn't changed. You look at them now. And I go past that school and I look at it every now and then I see these big kids and I go, holy smoke, how did I survive playing rugby with these guys? Because they're huge. And, and, I, and I just don't know how, but um, you did. Yeah. And, and that's what it was back then. Hey, Jim was, as I said, was more an academic than he was sport. Yes, he was ducks of the school. Oh, okay. Um, and him and I can... Petered on, on the science topics and that sort of thing. When it came to English, he aced me because that was one topic I was not very good at. I barely scraped through. But he, you know, um, so he was more the academic. Um, he wasn't involved so much in the rugby at school. It was more Tamaki Rugby Club. In New Zealand, the highest honour given out at the end of each school year for academic achievement is called Ducks, more or less. This award is given to the smartest kid in school. Jim received this award in his senior year. It's a pretty big deal at a time when just finishing school was considered an achievement. In particular, it was his numbers, or maths and science, that Jim was the most fluent. Remember in that age, not a lot of people did what is now year 13, 7 yeah. Um That was rare. Most people would... You'd get a huge dropout even just after school C, which was fifth form, um, particularly in Tamaki College. Um, a lot aren't going on any further than the bare minimum sort of thing. Um, so we, we were forced to do things like social studies, which has geography in it and that sort of stuff. Um, you did your maths was only one topic until you got to sixth form and then it would split into pure maths, and applied maths, which both him and I did. Um, chemistry, uh, sorry, big pardon, science, which is general science, and again until it split, I think in sixth form, and we just struck with, both him and I just did chemistry and physics. And then, uh, and then um, Jim did German as well. Um, he kept that language up, I think pretty much to, to sixth form. Whereas I did accounting. People of high intelligence, particularly those with primary interest in math and numbers, often struggle when it comes to the literary side of the brain. But Jim was an all-round, very capable student, able to excel in all subjects. Oh, he was a great thinker. Yeah. He, he it's sometimes too much. He, in relationships and conversations with people, he would often overanalyze. You know, he, if there was one thing he had to say, he needed to chill sometimes. <laughs> Just people said people didn't work to the same level of analytics as he did. Um, and therefore he'd, he'd draw up meaning of what somebody's saying that really wasn't there or wasn't intended um, on a regular basis. It's, it's like, what 
Yeah. <laughs> How did you come to that conclusion? <laughs> like, where did that come from? Yeah, that, that was a constant yeah. one that he was doing. And, I mean, that was... Um, that showed up again when... Because his... Uh, look, the name's Donnelly. They're Irish. They're Catholic. Um, I think he's one of nine, ten, because mm. they had one adopted thereafter. And the, the age range is huge. Um, between him and uh, the oldest, and um, though the family was quite religious, and he probably went even more so. Yeah, yeah tell me about that sort of period. Oh, that was probably around his fifth form, sixth form sort of time. You know, it would have been hard for him in those years because he didn't really fit in with a lot of other groups um, around the place um, because our school was not a big academic school. Um, so there'd have been oh, me and maybe a couple of others that would have been good friends of his at school, and that's really about it. Yeah. Um, so religion and church is a compelling option for him as well with the social um, connection and everything else and, and it resonated with him you know with, the, with his religious background but then you know he did that for a couple of years and he really you know boots and all into it sort of thing and um, which he started doing a little bit of the gospel that you know trying to recruit us into religion which of course didn't, didn't go down well, well. Um, so there was a little bit of distancing of um, the time of the friendship there for a little bit. We didn't see much, each other as much. And then he just saw the hypocrisy of what were his church leaders and other people around the place this year. We'll, we'll send during the week and uh, on the weekend we'll get, um, we'll, you know, yeah. confession. We're, we're fine. We're all good yeah, again, yeah. you know. And it's like, nah. And um, and I think also that was about the time that he he um, got involved with Venturous uh, Scouting. For those unfamiliar, the Scouts is an organisation focused on empowering youth through adventurous experiences like camping, woodcraft, hiking and sports. When joining the Scouts, they're expected to follow Scout law and make a promise. While Scout law has been amended in recent times, and there are variations, it is as follows. A scout's honour is to be trusted. A scout is loyal. A scout's duty is to be useful and to help others. A scout is a friend to all and a brother to every other scout. A scout is courteous. A scout is a friend to animals. A scout obeys without orders. A scout smiles and whistles under all difficulties. A scout is thrifty. A scout is clean in thought, word and deed. A scout would be expected to follow these laws and also to make a promise to do my honour to God and my country, to help other people at all times, to obey scout law. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's scout law and promise. And if you actually take the scout law and promise and, and, and live by that as your life um, guidelines, it, it's not religious, but it's just good guidelines. And, um, and he could see that they were actually quite good guidelines um, and so he he was happy with that he just wasn't as happy with the um, going to camping and um, roughing it a bit 
You might be wondering why I'm including these details about Jim's involvement in Scouts or his prior religious period. For me, I see it as helping frame Jim Donnelly as a young man in what appears to be a desire to be involved in groups that might perhaps give him the opportunity to fit in, be a part of a defined social structure that he perhaps felt he lacked in his life at that time. The other key point is that both religion and the Scouts have as their backbone very strong moral underpinnings. So which was the attraction for Jim? Or was it both? My reason for highlighting this is that these strong moral values would seemingly refute what is probably the most common belief about Jim's disappearance, that he's taken his own life somehow. But if Jim were to have done this, he would have broken the codes that he lived by. And while it's certainly not impossible it seems unlikely he would knowingly make that choice. It almost seems like perhaps was he looking for some kind of a structure or something to be involved in? I think the involved in is more the thing, the social. um, Because he could sometimes be quite socially awkward. Um, He he was never massively Um, self-confident. It would be apparent when he's speaking to people that he's just slightly nervous with, new people, that sort of thing you'd get um, almost a plum in his mouth. You know, the, the, he, he talked quite differently. Um, he just didn't relax and have a conversation with people. Sometimes. You're, like, you're like, Jim, just talk like you normally do. When yeah, yeah, yeah. Relax, yeah. man. And, yeah. and, and it was like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, um, it, it was something certainly he had. They, they, and he never really had that massive self-confidence. Yeah. And that showed up later. Um, his time at the mill, he was not, I, I won't say he was happy there. Mm. He was doing what he enjoyed doing, the metallurgy. Yeah. Um, he thoroughly enjoyed that side of it, the science of it and everything else. Um, and was, you know, was willing to get in there early to see a run finished and everything else. And, and yeah, we could talk about that all day long and he'd never bore of it. Neither would I, quite frankly. How long had Jim worked there for and what did he do prior to that? Had we he had were a, away what? for a I, I was long for, away for a while. He worked. Um, his oldest brother had a mill, uh, a foundry. Um, so he got introduced to metallurgy, which was right along his passion. You know, that, 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 was, that tied right in with the science and, and the chemistry and that sort of stuff, that scientific method mm. of, and thought of his. So it's perfect, really. And he hadn't... Um, he, we went to uni together. He didn't finish his degree. It, there, there was just too many other things what, going what on. Auckland. Auckland. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You were doing science then. Were you? you were both doing science. Yeah. And, um, but he went on and finished... His certification, it's changed its name now, AUT it is. Oh, right, okay. Auckland University of Technology, yeah, but it good, was yeah. something else prior to that. Yeah. It wasn't a university, it was trade school. Like, something yeah, like a polytechnic mm. type. That's yeah. right, that sort of thing. So he got certification there and that got him... Look, he'd been with the mill for a long, long time. I think he worked at another foundry previously and then, and then went on to the mill and he'd been there for a long, long time. Yeah. But he had not moved through the ranks. Um, Why do you think that might be? Well, he I'll tell you what he feels it is. Yeah. Um, he was 
he felt it's a little bit of he wasn't in the right social network. Um, he felt that he didn't get credit where credit was due on some of the projects, his managers or whatever else would, and they weren't willing to share that credit with him or acknowledge his um, input into it. So that made him quite, um, yeah, he, he was pretty dissatisfied with that, yeah. um, really unhappy about that. Uh, I said to him on a number of occasions, I said, well, keep looking, find another job, go somewhere else. You've got skills, you've mm. got abilities, you've done a lot, go somewhere else. And he looked, but he didn't, mm. you know. His family and two little kids. Yeah. You know. Mm. And, and look, it had been going on for a long time, his dissatisfaction with them and the not yeah. um, promoting them around the places he felt. However, that being said, he still thoroughly enjoyed what he was doing because it was the metallurgy. I mean, look, he had a couple of shots at trying to get in the right social network. He, he, he decided to take up golf. Um, that was disastrous. <laughs> that wasn't so good. Um, and um, and uh, then I think he decided that he'd have a look at uh, Masonic Lodge. Um, my dad has been in the Masonic Lodge for years and years and years, so was happy to. Um, we went along to an evening. I mean, I really went along just to... Uh, humour dad and accompany Jim because there was no way I was getting involved in the Masonic Lodge. My time, I, if I have spare time that I could dedicate to something in the community, it would be back into scouting as I am now. Just to clarify, when you say Masonic Lodge, that's Freemasons? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. The Freemasons, one of the world's oldest and largest fraternal societies, tracing its beginnings back to the stonemasons of the 13th century. It has long held an element of mystery and even an air of secrecy due to its policy that members remain discreet about the ceremonial practices that take place within the walls of its lodges. Because of this, hundreds of conspiracy theories have developed since the 18th century, and these normally fall into three main categories. Political, which usually involves aspects of control of the government. Religious, which usually involves allegations of satanic anti-Christian practices. And cultural usually involving popular entertainment. Many conspiracy theorists have even connected the Freemasons to the occult, secret worshippings and sacrifice. Even Adolf Hitler believed that Freemasonry was a tool of Jewish influence and outlawed and persecuted Masons for this very reason. It is certainly true that in history there have been many famous Masons in powerful positions, such as Presidents Franklin D. Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, Mozart, Benjamin Franklin, and George Washington, to name a few. But while the connection to power historically was very real, the Freemasons of today are a far different organisation, and their secret rituals are not so secret at all. But there's no denying that the organisation still carries a certain level of mystique, so when I heard that Jim had been actively pursuing joining the Masons on the weekend he disappeared, and in fact had an application form in his car when it was located, of course it raised my eyebrows. Was the important meeting that Jim was supposedly attending, the one in which he went and hired a dinner suit for, really some type of Freemason initiation meeting? Could Jim's bizarre behaviour over this period be related to the Freemasons in some way? 
It's certainly something I'm going to be looking into further. But as far as Stephen and Debbie are concerned, it's just another false lead. Last couple of days, that was, I understand, Jim was sort of sort of leaning that way. Don't know. Well, we don't know. There was some discussion around it, mm. and there was a – he did go and see Steve's mum and dad again. Um, but we're not really – that's he, probably a false lead. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a red herring. <laughs> she was quite opposed to it, so um, that wasn't going to happen. And then – but he did I – don't, I don't think he took it any further – because if he'd have taken it any further, he would have been discussing it with um, Smith, um, who's now dead. Um, because, and, and, and we know that, because but I, I asked him, um, and um, Dad asked him whether Jim had spoken to him or anything else, and no, yep. there hadn't been any approach. In fact, Dad went through all of the Masonic um, contacts he knew, and that's substantial, um, and there was no, no so, contact. It went no further. I remember at the time that we made inquiries because did, that was yeah. – um, and we made quite a lot of inquiries, spoke yeah. to a lot of people, and – There was no meetings that weekend of Masonics. There, yeah. There was yeah. – uh, We checked all that. We I rang quite a few of the Masonic lodges independently, Colin also rang contacts. Um, I talked to the gay community. I talked to anyone and everyone down that Dominion Road area. Yeah. I talked to people I've never talked to before. They have big networks, quite willing to talk to me and feedback any information. Nothing came to light. Um, uh, of any sort of alternate meeting, Um and the other thing was that he was going to meet some people. Well, we never worked out where that was. Where or when? You know, it was that weekend, but we, yeah, nothing I mean, came tonight. We I rang mean, the race course. We rang everything. In the weeks and months following Jim's disappearance, Stephen and Debbie were very proactive in trying to uncover Jim's exact movements over that weekend and discern what this meeting might have been. But despite extensive efforts, uncovered nothing. Yeah, yeah, it was just because he hired a suit, mm, and yeah. he was acting quite weird. I mean, and 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 I only, I was working at D seventy two at the time with a publishing company, and um, our dear old receptionist um, was actually the wife of the guy that caretaked the building, so they lived in the building, and um, and she told me, oh Monday morning, I think it was, yeah Monday morning about some weird and wonderful thing where a young gentleman, now I wouldn't have classed Jim as young, but of course now I look at it, you know, she was quite old. So <laughs> he possibly did appear young. Young is subjective. It, it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, had followed um, her husband's car into the um, garage of the place and it's a big, the car park, but it has a door on it, and then got lost, couldn't get out, so ended up asking for me, but because couldn't have got into the building otherwise. Yeah. Um, all the other doors are closed. He's been there, um, had visited me at work once um, or twice. He knew of the place because hell, it was a really good place to park your vehicle. Just to clarify, 
It was Stephen's work car park that Jim showed up to opposite the Chinese restaurant and was subsequently trespassed from. It's an event that has baffled Stephen all these years. And now for the first time, I'm hearing that Jim had actually asked for Stephen. So it begs the question, did Jim go there looking for Stephen that day? Or was this just an excuse for being there he provided when he was questioned due to his odd behaviour? Number 72, but it's called D72. It's an iconic building. Yeah. It's got um, a mesh all around the outside, and the inside of it gets constantly used for, or used to be used for um, filming and commercials and that sort of yeah. stuff, just for the way it was built yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, look, all I recall is she described this person to me, and it's like, I said, you got a license plate number? Because it was just something funny, and that was the Monday morning. And when she gave me the license plate number, I thought, yeah, that that's that's really really that's ringing a bell. I don't normally re- remember license plate numbers that much. I barely have dif- I have difficulty remembering my own half the time. And um, and that's when I rang Jim. Didn't get a hold of them, and then rang Tracy and clarified that yeah, that was that number. And and that's when everything started falling apart. But he obviously went there looking for you. He went there looking yeah. for him and he had already been here. But I was working night shift. Why don't we go back to let's go, we'll go through that. Why don't we go back to when the year, when it first started acting odd and what what happened and we'll just go from there. Okay, probably a couple of weeks before there was mm. some behavioural things where he was a bit down and I'm like he was a little bit like Oh, I had come home to do laundry. We were staying up at the beach at um, Manly Beach and I came home on the weekend to do laundry. It must have been a couple of weekends before and he came round and he had the children. Tracy was away and he was really all over the place and he just needed to see Stephen and I'm like, well, he's not here but you can come up the beach. Like, You can bring the kids, we'll have a great time. We've got heaps of food up there. I'm just doing laundry and I'm going straight back up there. You know, we can do a sleepover. The kids will love it because they all got on really well. And you can hang out with Steve and, you know, have a chat. Something's on you, obviously on your mind. And um, he's like, oh, no, no, no. I think, And I said, well, why don't you deal with whatever you need to deal with and I'll just take the children because I knew Tracy was away. And he's like, oh, no, I need to keep them close. I need to make sure they're all okay. And I'm like, they'll be fine. Like, I've looked after them before. But he was like, oh, no, I need to keep them. I need to watch them. Well, it's just which, a little which, bit off, you know. Which, which is just, unusual, considering that, that mm. honestly, um, he had no, and he, 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 you know, his kids are my kids. That it, it, it's Yeah, and our kids were really close, you know. Yeah. So anyway, he went off and I we went back and I said to Stephen, oh, you know, Jim came around. You need to actually get into checking in with him. He's not his usual self he's worried about something or he's depressed or something's not quite right and then and I don't know the timeline of when Tracy came back but apparently he'd had a car accident which I only heard about later Tracy came back from overseas and you know things were a little bit strange I think a bit strained over the car accident and things like that with them um and then we didn't see him for a while but it was around that time I thought, oh, he's just not quite himself. And it kind of continued on. So I don't know when that was in relation to when he disappeared, to be honest. But that's when I noticed he was different. That was the first time you noticed That it. I yeah. really thought, oh, my God, I'm a bit worried now. Yeah. Yeah. Something's it, going on. Something's happened. Yeah. He always was a bit all over the place. 
This yeah, was this just was an different. escalation of it. Again, we hear mention of this car accident and how it may be connected to Jim's odd behaviour at this time. Did this accident result in tension at home between Tracy and Jim, and as such was partly the cause of Jim's mental state, or is this just a coincidence? According to Tracy, Jim was exhibiting odd behaviour from the moment she returned home. Debbie goes on here to make an observation about Jim's tendency to overanalyze people. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You know, can get upset over a little thing if oh, someone says the wrong thing. That goes part of that overanalyzing stuff. Yeah, yeah. he need. He, he yeah. used to overanalyze me a lot, which I, you know, like. Um, Tracy and I weren't best friends then. We are now. Yeah. Um, and he would, and he used to sort of think, well, why can't you be more my wife's best friend? I'm like, well, you know, it, and there was kind of that little bit of a barrier, and I'm like, well, you know, that's for us to sort out, really. You oh, know, he's just like, well, we're friends, so you should. Yeah, we should. You should be the best of friends, you know. <laughs> and I don't know. We just had different lives at that mm. point in time, and we got on when we got together, but we weren't seeing each other. Like they were outside of when we got together. We didn't as a have group. the same history. Yeah, yeah. yeah like they didn't have the same history as we did. So yeah, like, yeah. Jim, these things happen organically. You don't yeah, just yeah, force yeah, a friendship. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah exactly. Yeah. And I think that was a little bit of a. I think I know. I know because I I had it out with him one time. I'm like, you know, this things don't always just work like that. You know, I am extremely busy. Um, and I've got a full life, and I'm very happy to spend time with you guys, but. You know, it's a two-way street too, <laughs> you know. But I know that, that he would always be watching me and analysing my relationship with Tracy, and I think that pushed me away rather than brought me towards Tracy. Yeah. Definitely say it pushed me away because I feel like Jim's analysing this. Jim's checking whether I'm being the person he thinks I should be to Tracy. But he'd known me since we were teenagers. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I know there was a little bit of tension. Not well, Tension's probably not the wrong word, but that's kind of how I felt. Um, and I know he wanted everything just right, but life's not like that. Yeah. He was great at chess and loved playing chess. And that's where you plan. Mm-hmm. Thorough and advanced. Um, he was playing many more moves ahead than it meant. It's clear that Jim was a man that didn't act randomly. He expected that if all the necessary moves were made, then a predicted outcome should result. Which makes it all the more odd as to why he was behaving in such an apparently unpredictable, random way during this period. What was the logic? 
And of course, it begs the question, does his behaviour appear bizarre to us because we don't know all the moves that were being made? We're missing the key pieces to the puzzle. And to Jim, who had those keys, everything he was doing did make perfect sense. There was a logical reason. If you'll recall in my interview with Tracy, at one point Jim had stated to her, if you knew what I was thinking, you wouldn't be worried. Family always comes first. This statement is an acknowledgement of the fact that Jim knew very well that he was acting strangely. But if he was letting on to Tracy that there was nothing to worry about, he obviously wasn't taking that on board himself, as Debbie recalls. The time. I can't quite remember the timeline, but that's that would that particular day stuck in my mind. And another day where I thought he was almost a little bit paranoid about things that were being said, like almost like jittery and not relaxing. And I just felt he wasn't his usual self. Yeah. There was certainly something else going on. Yeah, that, that he wasn't sharing. Fathom and. And, it, and I, you know, look, I look back and I wish, for God's sake, I wish I'd been at work at that stage mm. because I may have got what the hell was going on yeah. and being able to stop something stupid mm. happening, which is what I think's happened. Yeah, something and we stupid. just, we go back and we go, if only, but that's not life either. You, no. You know. he, might, he may have been going that day. I mean, he was looking for someone to talk to. He was him. definitely yeah, looking oh, for Stephen. Uh, absolutely. How does it feel? Um, it's be. not good. Yeah. And I feel quite bad because I believe he came round here and I was sleeping off a night shift and I think I heard a car and I was probably a bit slow to chuck some clothes on and get out there. The car had gone by the time I got up. And I think, oh, God, if only I had got there in time. I think um, Tracy says to me he was with Liam um, at that point, but I didn't know that. Um we had something on that weekend. Can't quite recall what it was. Um, but I was working nights. I was extremely. I was just going through the motions, really. Um, but and then, and we probably weren't seeing our friends as much because I was working nights and you know that sort of thing. Socially, we weren't doing um, quite as much. Yeah, I'm trying um, to think about that. I know. So that kind of bothers me that I probably didn't jump out of bed quick enough and I wasn't there to say, well, Stephen's not here, but he's here, you know, or he'll be back tonight. Um, that, that does play on my mind a bit. Yeah. Despite Jim's disappearance, obviously not being any fault of theirs, Stephen and Debbie do carry their own personal weight of guilt for not being there at just that right moment. Could they have possibly helped avert whatever trouble Jim was in? To be able to do nothing must be an incredible feeling of helplessness, and I feel for them. For what have no doubt been 18 years of sleepless nights wondering what if. As we continue discussing the events of that weekend, we're drawn back to the hiring of the suit and Jim's apparent application for the Freemasons. And when viewed in light of Jim's forward thinking and planning, we start to wonder, could the Freemason meeting have simply been a calculated ruse? Something to throw Tracy off the scent of what he was really up to. Um, it was quite a formal suit, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he went uh, and hired it. And he, because Tracy and him had a booking at a hotel for the night, because she got given it as a gift. The and they hired. were the hired or something. Yeah. And so they were going to, and I knew they were busy that weekend. So, you know, 
we were just, I was just recovering and we weren't intending to see them because I knew they were busy. And um, so he went and hired the suit, she said. Um, and he came home and said to her, I need to go and avert a crisis or something. God knows what that was. So we can't go to the Hyatt. Um, and she said, well, what do you mean by it? She was pretty upset. Um, I don't know when the Freemasons thing came up, whether that was around that time. But I too. think she was thinking because he was hiring a suit that that was a, something. He was to going do to the Freemasons. Freemasons, which there was nothing on at that I time. I don't know whether he led that. her to believe that. Yeah. That's another thing that kind of comes up with me. I think he was, he was intending for her to think that, even though it wasn't that. Yeah. For whatever I, reason, I don't I wouldn't know. wouldn't put that beyond him. And, and that's what when I was saying about mm. the Freemasons. I mean, if there's, that could have all just been. A, a smoke screen. Exactly. I think it was. You know, I absolutely think it was. I don't think it had look, anything to do with that. Look, look, I think he had intentions of at one stage right. um, because he thought that that might have solved some problems for him, some connections, and got that going for him. But when Tracy exhibited her sort of reaction she did, her opposition to it, then that idea was shelved. Well, he went and talked to Stephen's parents and they actually said to him, the thing with Freemasons, it, you have to be there as a couple. It's expected that the wife follows you into the thing. It's it a family unit. So if Tracy doesn't agree with this, then you can't join the Freemasons. It's okay. as simple as that. They had explained to him that it's it's a, it's a family thing and it just takes time. Hmm. Um if if they want to, if if Tracy wanted to get involved with more stuff, just come on. You don't have to be and come and talk to us. Yeah, yeah. but um, Tracy was adamant that she that had a very close mind on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, and you know that's fine. We all have our opinion about things, and that's life. You close it, you, know? you carry on. Mm. Next, yeah. but I think that Freemason stuff was just a smokescreen for yeah. some reason. because yeah. that's not what. We categorically absolutely exhausted every yeah, single... Yeah, we pretty much did our own checks on that. Yeah. Um, and if there had been anything in that, my word, we would have found it. It's certainly possible that Jim may have fabricated the meeting under the guise of somehow being connected to the Freemasons. And if that's correct, then what was the purpose? Was the hiring of a suit just part of the act? Or was that something Jim genuinely needed? Was Jim's initial approach to Stephen's father about joining the Masons also an extended element of the ruse? Remember, Jim was a person that would plan his actions many moves in advance, so it could be in the realms of possibility. But if we took it at face value and said that he indeed did deeply want to join the Masons, and this request was flatly denied by Tracy, is this another bump in the road for Jim at this time? To combine with the car accident and his mother's illness. It could be a lot for a person that can get down and overanalyze like Jim. Was Jim the kind of guy that would, was he quite open? Like would you and him sit down and talk about real things or was it more just a, you know what I mean? Would he yeah, say, we would. oh, you would, yeah. 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 And did Jim ever exhibit any kind of behavior that you might think, you know, is, was he a depressive kind of guy at all or could he be that a bit that way? And you're like, it's all good. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and yes, we talked a lot about where his upsets and where things that had... I mean, he had a few tragedies in his life. A, a, a couple of his brothers died. Okay. Um, his mum was unwell. 
Oh, look, he had very early, she was well he had very early parents, and he came back from the UK um, early because he went travelling. Um, and he came back from the UK early to um, because his dad, had, I think, had his God. They seem to have so many strokes and heart attacks. It might have been the tenth oh, or something like that, mm. you know. And so he came back, and and that basically was to he, he knew it was his dad's last yeah. term, you know. Um, and it was close to his mum. He was the last, mm. the youngest. Um, there was one adopted after that. Um, yeah, that that didn't go well. And what, what happened to his brothers? You said that they passed. Uh, I keep on getting the brothers' names mixed up. It was Warren and um, uh, Keith. Keith, yeah. Keith, Keith. Was, yeah, that was a tragedy. Keith was gay. He he got HIV. He died of AIDS. Oh, Jesus. While we were away. Yeah. And oh, we didn't and know. Didn't, we only got a letter after he died, which was like, oh my god, why didn't you tell us? Jesus. Yeah. And I didn't and, actually and he really, really. I only really met close Keith. To Keith. You know, Keith was. I think the next one up, and uh, and. Uh, he, Quite frankly, I would have liked to have known too, because I would have come back to go get to his funeral. That that, that was, um, yeah. yeah, that was tough. Actually, it was sort of like, oh my god, you didn't, you've been going through all this and you haven't told us. Yeah, so he, yeah, he can you know, bottle he can bottle things. Well. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Stephen was his best friend, and he didn't tell him his brother was dying. Oh, it yeah. was a shock. Yeah, because we just got a letter away. afterwards. We were, we were living in, in Melbourne. And we got this letter. We spent about like, eighteen oh years God. over there. Oh right, so you've yeah. gone for quite some time. Yeah. Mm, long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then and then Keith. And Keith was sorry, Warren. Um Warren was sort of the next one up, uh, age group from you know, Keith then Warren. And Warren was, you know, Jim liked his motorbike, went through various it's never used. He never fell off it when I was when he had me as pillion, but that was because I told him uh, Kept him honest, um, but yeah, he did. He did drop his bikes a few times around the place from over enthusiasm. Um, but um, he, um, but Warren was the motorbike. You know, he, he was that influence and uh, get out and do some other interesting stuff, that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, when when he died, and I think that was cancer. Yeah, I think oh, it was. right. Um, so he and, can't have been that old. No, he wasn't. Um, but then his brothers were all quite a lot older than him. Yeah. Um, Bob, his oldest brother. Uh, gee, I think he's well into his eighties now. Um, he got Jim into sailing, um, and Jim loved his sailing. There's no doubt that Jim had experienced some tough emotional times in the years prior to his disappearance. And despite Stephen saying that they would speak about issues, we know that he did have the propensity to bottle things that were important, like his brother's AIDS diagnosis and subsequent death from Stephen and Debbie. Was Jim also hiding more desperate feelings, ones that may have involved self-harm? It's certainly possible. But as with this case... For every piece of evidence that points in one direction, there's another that disputes it. Why would Jim go to work that morning if he planned to self-harm? And if he did, how did he do it? And where is his body? These are all questions we're going to go into in further detail in upcoming episodes. But despite these signs of depression and odd behaviour, Stephen and Debbie are confident in their belief 
that Jim did not take his own life. In their mind, foul play can't be ruled out. Yeah, look, look, I've got a couple of thoughts on it. Um, uh, uh, to me, it's it's it was really interesting talking to um, a psychiatrist. Was that which was sometime later about um, you know all the things that Jim was experiencing and everything else? And the commentary was that yeah, some people live like this all their life, and I'm going for God's sake, that's got to be hard. Um, really? And I don't remember who. Yeah, no, no. Well, you were the one that relayed that. Yeah. But that was interesting, that sort of commentary. But I looked at it and I went, I don't believe that he's self-harmed. Mm. I, I just mm. couldn't see that. Um, I couldn't rule out that he's done a runner for whatever reason, but I didn't think that that was... Mm. The likely, you know, that that's the twenty percent of maybe, um, maybe even less than that. Um, in my mind, it's always been he's seen something that he should not have seen that was going on at the mill because he was there odd hours. He could be there at four in the morning, three in the morning, because that's when a run is finishing. He's seen something. There's an awful lot of ex-convicts out there that are as contractors. There's a lot of people moving around that mill, um, a lot of shady things going on in that neck of the woods. He's seen something that he shouldn't have seen. He's had some pressure put on him. They've known that he's seen it. And either there's been a malicious, deliberate act to get rid of him, or there's been a roughing up of him, an altercation, and accidentally... He's been killed, yeah. and there's been a cover-up on that. Mm. And there is clearly other parties involved. When you look at some of the evidence mm. around the place, the placement, mm. the biggest thing to me is the placement mm. of the helmet and the stuff in the acid bath. It, it, it's not more acidic than bloody Coca-Cola, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. the search was a farce because... The police could only go where the mill people took them. The, the guy, the guy that arrived, had no balls. All right, he didn't have the confidence, the policeman, to say, "Hey, this is serious. Let's stop areas where there was a train left um, <laughs> with coils of steel on it that left shortly after we had got there, or, or after the police had got there." Yeah. And who knows whether a body was stored on that. Um, you know, there's still areas that haven't been searched and looked at. So you thought they were just looking for... They weren't taking... They were guided yeah. around the facility. Mm. Um, could easily have been guided by somebody that actually knew what was going on. Yeah. Not a problem. They, they had a search of the grounds because they thought that somebody, you know, might have done the runner. Who went out and helped? A whole lot of people in day glow orange shirts. They would never have spotted them from from Jim. Even the police, even the police helicopter said, "Well, that was a waste of time," because they wouldn't have known who from who out there. Um, Jim did have a distinctive um, hard hat. Appears to me that when you read it, it it's pretty obvious that that was placed somewhere afterwards. Seems. The other thing that needs investigation and thought about was there's the thing of the laundry where 
Jim's laundry appeared in the um, in the laundry queue to be washed some days later. I understand they clear that daily. So how the hell did it appear there some days later? Somebody clearly another party involved that did something later. Or or may it might be as innocent as they then cleaned out his somebody cleaned out his um, locker and went or, or there was is uh, an even older set of clothing was sitting around somewhere and it was then put into the washer. You know, it may be quite certainly innocent, possible, but yeah. it certainly seems that there's something. When you start stacking a lot of circumstantial evidence together, it's yeah, it starts to make a bit of a web. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And sometime later, we heard that a car came in that oh, night. Yes. yes, tell me about that. Yeah, we heard about it a lot later, but I, I I have a feeling it was either that night. It was that night. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It, it was that night. Came in. Um, saw security guard. Saw security there, so backed away with the lights still on, which is what a crim would do mm. because you can't see the licence plate. Um, so they were clearly looking for something. And unfortunately, none of the mill's cameras work. So at the time, um, mm. they were up, but they weren't working. They'd never checked them. It's like, really, guys? Don't know. But they certainly apparently had cameras of the car park area, but they weren't giving us anything. And they did give us the excuse that, um, no, they weren't working. Yes. Yeah. You know, which is, look, quite, is quite honestly, common, it's, it's plausible. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a funny thing, that one. That came out later, and it was like, well, we were the cops then. You know, wouldn't you be expecting the car was still there? They, we think they came to get the car, whoever mm. it was. Maybe they didn't realise we are onto them so quick. Don't know. But then that says to me, that says to me, like I said to Grimshaw when I met him, because all he did was upset Tracy in the first five minutes. So that was him. And I said, oh, well, okay, now it's my turn. We have meetings to talk about this. He said, what do you mean you have meetings? And I'm like, well, we want to know what's going on. We're not getting it from you. And I said, you tell me that you've been out there and you've walked the walk, that you've talked to the people on the night shift coming off and the day shift coming on, and you've interviewed all these people, and you've walked the walk that Jim would have done. Oh, no, I have genius to do that. I'm like, oh, my God. So, you know, where's that report? Where's that information? It's not there. Nobody's coming forward and telling us a timeline or what happened. Here, Debbie refers to the detective that was brought on in relation to the inquest into Jim's disappearance, Neil Grimstone, prior to the case being reinvestigated by Dave Glossop. Neil didn't want to speak on the record, but I did speak with him, and he said that in their investigation, they found no evidence of any kind of foul play. It's clear that at this time, they were firmly of the belief that Jim had run away and taken his own life. It was incompetency and so complacency. was so Honestly, incompetent. Was they so, had, oh my God. That in a lack of professionalism, they closed their mind. Um, they he just had, told Tracy he's run off and talked to yeah, himself. That's they, the first thing he said. They decided he'd run off. Mm. I'm like, it's not your position to do that. You know, they 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 had closed off the option of yeah of anything else. Yeah. Of anything else, they decided. Mm. It's the belief of Stephen and Debbie that, due to the original police believing Jim had simply run off, other avenues weren't investigated until it was too late. One particular point of concern has to do with the interviewing of the mill staff. Instead of all staff being interviewed, as you might expect. Staff were instead asked to voluntarily come forward if they had seen or had any interaction with Jim. Naturally, this would present a problem to any investigation if Jim had been the victim of foul play. 
it's not likely any culpable person would come forward voluntarily. That oh, he's topped himself. Yeah. Which they didn't think about the fact that yeah, somebody would be jittery if they're anxious. Under pressure, if and we're just trying to be open and give the information that might assist in any way. But we feel like we probably led them down the wrong track as well. Because yeah. I don't think in those people on those shift changes got all interviewed. And when I've asked the police, oh, everyone was interviewed that needed to be. Well, that's because they asked people if they wanted to be interviewed. That's a different story. You know, you've actually got to interview everyone, whether they want to be interviewed or not. There there is at least one or two people at the mill at that time that know what the hell's happened to Jim and have been instrumental in whatever has happened. And, um, and you need more than one person to move a body. You need yeah. a male, you will need three people to move a body. Uh, dead body's heavy. I'll tell you that. I've moved dead bodies and they're heavy. You can't do that on your own. It's oh, extremely yeah. hard. At, at least two. But you yeah. need at least two and potentially three if you're going to put them on a trolley or a train or a, somewhere else. There's no doubt that there's an element of animosity between Stephen and Debbie and the original police in charge of Jim's case. They go on to mention that things changed when Dave Glossop took over and had only positive things to say. But in their minds, the case has become one of priority for the police and are realistic in the fact that time is in short supply for current detectives working on an 18-year-old cold case. We speak on for almost two hours, covering their different theories of the case and different memories of Jim. And as I'm packing up to leave, I ask a more poignant question of Stephen. And as he starts to answer, I see the memory flood into his eyes and he stops to look out the kitchen window at the garden in an emotional moment, which really demonstrates how, despite all these years, Stephen still carries a lot of grief about losing a best friend and even more sadly, guilt that he couldn't have done more. Obviously, we'll be talking more. Yeah, Um, cool. But yeah, I suppose to finish today, I guess, you know, I mean, on a more, you know, if you could go back to that week, you know, and say something to Jim, you know, before, I'm sure it's probably run through your mind. I mean, what would you... I just wish I was there when he he appeared. Yeah. Honestly, seriously. I guess it's that regret of... it's, uh... It's one of the things that, Thereafter, the the mates we've all said to one another based on. Just look after each other. You know, keep an eye on each other. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, if you could say something to Jim now, what would you... Um, I think it would be that in spirit we were with you, We, we would be thinking of you, and... I think you have to say you're sorry that you weren't able to step in a bit sooner. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you can also beat yourself up about it and there's nothing you can do at the end of the day. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those circumstantial really things, really you know. And good on Tracy for keeping it going because um, his family certainly have pulled right away from her. There's now a real gap between them and her I think they just like to shovel it all under the carpet it's just all too hard and too emotional that's been taking its toll on the kids and Tracy um, 
but yeah, I think I think it would be that we kind of we we're on to you, but we went on to you fast enough. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What would, what would you say, Stephen? Look, I agree with that. Look, I look at it. And I, look, it's happened. I'm angry that it's happened. I'm upset that couldn't have been there at the time through no fault of my own it's like Jesus you expect me to be there that time of night at work nah not happening but equally Jesus if I could go back in time I would be there Um, and I feel 100% that it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have happened you know, we would have been able to stop. We could have averted it, I think. Um, I feel absolutely 100% that we could have stopped that. Um, that being said, we then used that. Um, you, you can't alter the past. You can only alter the future. And that being said, that we, we just have the agreement amongst the guys. If, if you've got something going on, be honest, be, speak, speak to one another and hope that... Um, and, and, and we hope that that lives on in people's minds and that they will do that. Um, Mm. Reality is not always that. As I drive home on my way from this interview, I process everything I've learned. And while I feel I've discovered a lot more about Jim's fragile state of mind at the time, I think I've also come away with even more of an appreciation of Jim's analytical nature. Jim was a planner. He loved chess because of this. And as Stephen said, Jim would beat him every time because if you're thinking three moves ahead, Jim's thinking ten. And while chess might not provide the perfect analogy for life, it has me thinking, how many moves ahead was Jim that weekend? Could much of what took place have been an intentional act of Jim to deceive? And if so, for what reason? Again, No answers, just more questions with tantalising possibilities. But as I drive home, there's one thing I know for sure. I won't find the answers to the questions I need here. I need to go to the source, the last place Jim was ever seen, and speak to the last people that ever saw him alive. It's time to visit the Glenbrook Steel Mill. Guilt is written, produced, and edited by me, Ryan Wolfe. The title track is Nuclear Conception by Alison Winter. For further photos and video related to this episode, you can find a companion post on my Instagram, RyanWolfeNZ, or our Facebook page, Brevity Studios NZ. For ad-free listening and bonus content, you can subscribe for the price of a coffee on Apple Plus under our Brevity Studios channel. You can also find further information on our website, theguiltpodcast.com. If you have any information related to the disappearance of Jim Donnelly or the subsequent search at the mill, you can contact us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. On the next episode of Guilt. Something that's interesting here is that um, I'm standing over where the houses are on Williams Road and from where the houses are, there's actually sort of a berm hill that's between them and the steel mill itself. And then there's a huge amount of paddock before the mill. So if someone were to get out, let's say Jim had gone out of the paddock, out of the mill, 
and then run across the paddocks. They would never see from the house here anyway. If he ran in this direction, sure, but you could run in the other direction down the coastline and no one would see you down there. And you're trying to go through a tunnel that's like, you know, three feet wide by, by, by three feet high. You're on hands and knees and, and you don't know what you're going to find. It started off as a joke and then it got rather scary because what happened was we weren't asked to do it just once. It wasn't just one crew doing this. It wasn't just the day shift searching for Jim. Day shift went off, handed over to night shift, who then buddied up and did the exact same inspection that the day shift guys done. Then we came in the next day and did it again. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.